You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. Breaking news in the war in Ukraine on the front page of the Washington Post today. The headline reads, Ukraine's strikes rely on precision targets from U.S. Joining me is one of the reporters on that story, Dan Lamoth, national security writer for The Washington Post. Dan, welcome back to First Look. Hey, good morning. So your story opens saying, and I quote, Ukrainian officials said they require coordinates provided or confirmed by the United States and its allies for the vast majority of strikes using its advanced U.S.-provided rocket systems. What's the rationale behind this? The, the idea is that the, these are very advanced system, uh, systems that require very specific uh, GPS targeting. Um, Ukraine has the ability to fire these on their own. They could pick a spot on the map, that kind of idea. Uh, but these are very precise and very expensive weapons. It's a very finite number. Uh, so the, so the, the working um, calculus at this point appears to be to do everything they can for Ukraine uh, to make each of these targets as precise as possible short of fire, firing the round itself. Mm -hmm. And I want to pick up on your use of the phrase finite number, um, the idea that they want, the, the Ukrainians want the U.S., or you you tell me, is it that the Ukrainians want the U.S. to give them this targeting, the, this targeted information, or is it the United States wants to be sure that the Ukrainians have targeted uh, information so that they don't fire off these advanced uh, advanced systems and not hit the target, basically a fear of wasting the munitions? Uh, I, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I, I think on the Ukrainian side, uh, they see the value in being precise with these weapons uh, and, and really, I, I think, making sure they hit what they want when they can, um, you know, knowing that there, there's only a certain number of these munitions knowing that they are still vastly outgunned by the Russians. Uh, so th this is a, this is a uh, significant capability they have, but they need to use it right, more or less, to keep the advantage. Uh, on the United State, State side, I mean, this is a, a prickly decision. This is something that is sensitive in Washington and beyond. Um, so really, I think the calculus there is they will not um, launch the round themselves uh, they do not want to be in the habit of approving or disapproving uh, Ukrainian targets, uh, but they will provide the specific coordinates quietly. So I'm curious the re the reaction um, if you've heard any uh, to the story from the Pentagon, because as as uh, you note in the story, this what you're reporting today on the front page of the Washington Post is previously unreported. So how's that going over at the Pentagon? I mean, frankly, it was a challenging story to report out, and we, and we put a fair amount of time into it. I mean, probably about a week worth of, of, of back and forth trying to get everything right uh, and trying to have a discussion about what was too sensitive and that sort of thing as well. Um, I think the key takeaway from the Pentagon is, is really they cannot footstomp enough that they are not launching the rounds, and they cannot footstomp enough that they are not approving or disapproving the Ukrainian targets. That, I think, uh, already highlights the sensitivity here. They need to make it clear that the Ukrainians are firing their own rounds uh, and that the Ukrainians are calling their own shots. Right. And as you note in the story, 
um, you guys persisted for days trying to get some kind of comment from the Pentagon. One more question on this before we turn to the, the Chinese spy balloon. Uh, and that is to your last point about the Pentagon foot stomping to make it clear that they are not the ones doing this. How much concern is there, or is that because there's a concern that the Russians will view basically the United, the United States fighting a proxy war with Russia? Yeah, that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot at this point. And then there's actually a sort of a, a fruit salad of definitions, which I think makes it additionally complicated. I think the definition that's probably the most useful here uh, is to highlight whether or not the United States is an instigating party in this. And I think by most accounts, they do not fall in that category. Therefore, this still falls something short of a proxy war. Uh, but there are a number of people that would certainly disagree with that view. Um, all right, Dan, let's talk about the, the Chinese spy balloon shot down over the Carolina coast. Uh, last weekend, the State Department said yesterday that the balloon was equipped to collect intellig uh, signal intelligence. There's lots of, there was lots of upset on at a Capitol Hill hearing yesterday with Democrats and Republicans slamming the administration for not shooting the balloon down ASAP and slamming Pentagon officials for not being more forthcoming in their answers. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a hearing that, that you know, in, in the year of 2023, it's rare to hear Republicans and Democrats so, so similar on an issue. Uh, but but that was very much the case. I mean, uh, frustration and anger really being expressed uh, by both parties to some degree. Um, I think that the frustration comes on a couple levels. Uh, one, this becomes a different sort of discussion when, when an average civilian can look up and say, hey, what's that? Is that something I need to worry about? You know, and the calls that lawmakers will get and their own concerns about their own districts. Mm -hmm. um, two, I think this is a situation where, you know, the, the assumption has generally been that United States airspace is safe and sovereign, uh, you know, and that a, a potential threat of some kind will not be allowed. In this case, at least for a period of time, it was. So then, now that we're a week out from the the balloon traversing the entire continental U.S., what have we learned about what China is up to with with um, with this balloon that they initially said was, "Oh no, it's just a weather balloon." Yeah, I, I think that's really the, the the most important piece for the Pentagon here is they made a judgment call that it was better uh, and more useful to let this thing fly over, uh, assess its intent, make sure it doesn't have any hostile intent, uh, and then beyond that, basically observe this thing very closely, watch what it does, watch what it has on it, and now recover it, and then hopefully gain information that's useful for, for assessing what is essentially a global Chinese surveillance program. Um. It is believed that there are multiple balloons in circulation right now uh, as part of a global fleet. This is incredible to me that in 2023, with all the advanced systems that we're talking about, balloons. But what else do we know right now about other balloons that might be in circulation? Yeah, I mean, really what the Chinese appear to have done is, is marry up a very old school technology that goes back to World War One, World War II, and, and prior to that even. Um, and, and marry that up against some very sophisticated electronics uh, to create a, a capability that is 
you know, not, not a satellite, uh, but, you know, flies quietly, hard to observe, um, you know, and, and, and gets into an, you know, 60,000 60, or higher uh, altitude that, that, you know, gives it some use. It's, it's, it's lower than a satellite. It, it may be able to pick up additional things. The Pentagon's still sorting out what exactly this thing can do. All right, so we've got just a couple minutes left, but here's what I'm wondering. The thing was blown out of the sky. Um, the debris landed in water. Do they really hope that they can find out any, any kind of information uh, from, the, from the remnants of this balloon? And the other question is, as the balloon sailed over, over the United States, do you know if the Pentagon was able to intercept any of its communications and what it was picking up as it was flying over the uh, over continental U.S. Uh, I, I do not know the latter. Uh, I suspect they certainly would have wanted to and tried. Uh, I, you know, some of those details are, are still a bit, uh, you know, behind the wall, if you will, and we, we don't have that level of detail in public. Um, but but I think you know what this essentially looks like now is is something akin to a large air crash car recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, it went down. They picked a spot where the water was reasonably shallow. It's about 50 feet deep off the coast of South Carolina, where it actually splashed down. Um, you know, they've pulled up uh, a lot of this sort of surface remnants. Uh, you know, there's photographs the Navy released of the canopy being pulled into a, a small craft. Uh, the, the rest of it, to our knowledge, still remains below the surface. Uh, they're now using uh, oceanographic uh, mapping, divers, uh, and the goal here is ultimately to pull as much as you can up uh, and then exploit it for as much information as you can. Mm -hmm. Huh. I wonder, you know, you, you talked about, you know, like, uh, like after an airplane crash, you know, they go to recover uh, the debris. I would just wonder if this balloon has a black box. <laughs> that would be yeah, it's, really uh, incredible. No, the assessment would would be there's no black box per se, but but uh, I mean I think the question becomes is you know what kind of memory did this thing have on it you know and and what's it look like after a, a fall from that height into fifty feet of water you know can they still pull information off of it that is useful uh, they'll look at whether there's cameras whether there's sensors uh, you know what kind of op optics does it have on it all of these things uh, could come in helpful just for being clear on what these other balloons may be hearing as well. Mm -hmm. um, well, this this part of the conversation has made me even more interested in what was up with that balloon. Dan Lamoth, national security reporter for The Washington Post, thanks for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Sure. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we'll find Washington Post Columnists Christine Emba and Jason Willick. Christine and Jason, welcome to First Look. This is your debut. It's my debut. Is it Christine's debut? Oh, that's right. You've been on before. Well, maybe I've not been with you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess our communications were lost when the balloon went down. <laughs> well, that just means my, my memory is bad. Well, welcome. Your debut, Jason. Welcome back, Christine. Um, this is to both of you. Big news dropped last night that former Vice President Mike Pence received a subpoena from the special counsel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the subpoena being issued after months of negotiations between um, Mike Pence's people and the special counsel. Um, Christine, I'll start with you. 
Talk about the significance of this step. Yeah, this was this was a surprise, a Friday news dump, I would say. Um, but it is one of the more aggressive, perhaps most aggressive attempts right now um, to get more information on Donald Trump's January 6th attempts um, in advance of the electoral season. You know, Mike Pence was previously in talks to do a voluntary interview about this, and that was at an impasse, apparently. And so now the subpoena has been uh, issued. The question is whether Donald Trump will try and invoke in executive privilege again to block this from happening. Um, but this just shows that, you know, the, the Department of Justice is going after him hard. And it'll be an interesting test, too, to see whether Pence himself cooperates. There are a lot of rumors that he will be attempting to run for president in 2024. He's been sort of slowly signaling his sort of moves away from uh, his former boss, even as he tries to placate Trumpist members of the Republican Party and voters. So I'm interested to see how he finesses this situation. And Jason, I would love your views on this, um, particularly the notion of his Trump um, swooping in and trying to claim executive privilege. But also, I seem to remember during the January 6th Select Committee's hearings, uh, former Vice President Pence issued a statement basically saying, you know, if you guys subpoena me, you know, I'm not going to honor that because I, you're, you're not a law enforcement entity. Well, now we have a law enforcement entity, and I was paraphrasing there. Now we have a law enforcement entity that's hit him with a subpoena. Do you think that he actually would try to defy it? I think he may well, especially because, as Christine said, he's likely running for president and it's probably not good for him in a primary to be uh, complying with the subpoena. Uh, so I think, you know, and of course, he's also the only other elected official in the executive branch besides the president. So he has his own executive privilege claims in addition uh, to Donald Trump's and the fact, as Christine said, that we're hearing reports that he that the DOJ was trying to get him to voluntarily come in and talk and he he declined to. So, you know, my guess would be that he says, I've said my piece in my book and I'm claiming executive privilege here. But, um, you know, that that could change and he could lose in court and be be forced to testify anyway. And if he does, you know, he's a, he's an important witness. How can he claim executive privilege? I mean, I'm picking up what you were just saying, Jason. You know, I'm claiming executive privilege, and I said what I said in my book. How can you? How can he do that? I mean, doesn't he have a a? I understand the partisan uh, reason for not complying with the subpoena, but doesn't he have a patriotic duty to comply with the subpoena? Well, we've seen uh, partisanship. You know, sometimes uh, override you know people's sense of their duty, and and you know maybe. You know, he didn't feel he had a patriotic duty to uh, cooperate with the January 6th committee. Will he see the Department of Justice as much different after its negotiations with him? Haven't haven't worked to get him in voluntarily. I I just wouldn't be um, wouldn't be surprised if if he figures that you know all the information is already out there. He doesn't want Trump criminally charged. He's you know said almost as much. And uh, but you know he he could surprise us. Christine, to give you the last word on this before we go to the balloon. He could surprise us. I mean, that's I guess that's always the case. You know, one thing, not just a patriotic duty to, you know, speak to the DOJ, but you have to wonder 
whether Mike Pence has any personal interest uh, in speaking about January 6th. You know, one of the sort of most memorable incidents of that day was Donald Trump blaming Mike Pence for not holding back the electors and then January 6th protesters shouting that they were going to find him and hang him. You would think that he'd be, you know, a little bit upset and maybe want to cooperate, if only uh, to protect himself, perhaps from future hangings. Um, but Mike Pence has just been very squirrely this whole time about, you know, who he supports and what his duties are. Even the title of the book that he's released, So Help Me God, suggests that he's really interested in doing his duty, but we just haven't seen any of that. Mm. Well, you know, you know, maybe the former vice president will surprise us. Maybe he's watching. And if he is, Vice President Pence, surprise us. Please. <laughs> All right. Um, let's let's move on to the, the the spy balloon. Yesterday, the House voted 419 to zero to condemn China for its quote brazen violation of United States sovereignty. Jason, is the overwhelming bipartisanship a blip or a sign of more to come in the House? Well, I don't think China is particularly uh, deterred by a House, you know, resolution. Uh, but I think there is bipartisan uh, support for a hawkish U.S. policy on China. We've seen that the Trump administration began it. The Biden administration continued it. There's more consensus on China than there is on Ukraine. Uh, but I think, you know, this is something that doesn't cost anything. It doesn't have any uh, real implications. It's it's very safe to express your outrage at a at a balloon penetrating American airspace. So the question will be, does the bipartisanship hold when, you know, rep members actually have to weigh competing interests against each other? And w one more question on this, Jason. I mean, history has shown that events like this have, poten have the potential to derail diplomatic efforts. I think we all remember that uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was due to leave for Beijing the day the news broke of this balloon uh, hovering over the United States. Um, Considering where we are in this, who should make the next move in the relationship between the United States and China? Because balloons or not, confrontation and aggression or not, these two countries have to deal with each other. Yeah, and we've, we've had reports that uh, Lloyd Austin was calling his Chinese counterpart and not getting a reply. So China is sort of the one um, huffing and puffing right now, more so perhaps than the United States after it, after it canceled its visit. You know, I would say that it's it's up to China. They're the one who, you know, set off this particular thing by sending a spy balloon over the United States on the eve of a top-level diplomatic visit. Uh, but, of course, I think the reason for the diplomatic visit in the first place was that the Biden administration wants um, sort of a more steady relationship with China and may be worried about the risk. So, you know, that's not going to go away. And there probably will be communication attempts behind the scenes. Uh, let's turn to the, the State of the Union, um, Christine. Uh, the the, the so-to, as we call it, is the biggest platform a president has to talk to the American people. And yet, um, it's an incredibly shrinking platform. The, the, the data is out. Viewership was down 29% compared to last year, viewership of the State of the Union. So is the State of the Union even effective anymore for the president to communicate to the nation? 
You know, I think that it actually still is. I would say that, you know, the State of the Union itself may not be seen as primetime viewing for most Americans. But in these days where we're getting our information from social media, from other sources, it is the clips, the memes, the photos, uh, the post so to analysis, actually, that is still reaching people. And I think actually this week's State of the Union was spicy enough and interesting enough that many Americans will have paid attention, uh, if not in the moment, to what has been said um, and what that implies for the future. You know, uh, Christine, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't proactively talk about the fact that you watched the State of the Union with a class of, of college students. <laughs> Who were these college students and what did they have to say? Yes, yeah, so I actually watched uh, the State of the Union in the Washington Post offices. Um, our colleague who you had on before, James Homan, uh, is teaching a politics class of students from Stanford University who are studying abroad in DC. And so he brought them in the office and I sat with them through the speech, which was delightful. The children are truly our future. Um, and they were very engaged, I mean, in watching this speech. Uh, they found it fascinating. Um, and I think they actually found it more exciting uh, than they expected. One of the defining factors of the speech this week, I think, was how sort of feisty and combative Joe Biden was. Republicans have tried to paint him as almost senile, but he really seemed to enjoy getting into sort of back and forths uh, with them as they heckled him over um, statements about Medicare and Social Security, especially. He pointed out that Republicans um, seem to be using the debt ceiling to hold those hostage and are suggesting that they be sunsetted. Republicans booed, Biden clapped back, uh, and seemed to have actually reached some public, you know, assent to, you know, not sunsetting those programs. The students, I think, were really interested too in what looked like real kind of generational differences. Um, watching with a class of college students and then looking at the screen at the you know, House of Representatives and members of Congress, the age difference, um, what some in the media, not myself, um, have called sort of the gerontocracy that is you know, really <laughs> Congress uh, is evident. You know, Jason, uh, notably, and I'm, I'm sure the children, this is what made it so fun for them to watch, Several members of the of the Republican Party heckled the president during the address, calling him a liar multiple times. I rem I'm old enough to remember when Joe Wilson, congressman from South Carolina, screamed out, you lie, during a joint session address by President Obama over health care. And like the country was like gas for three days. We just come through a State of the Union where the president's heckled as a liar multiple times, and it's just like, yeah, another another day at the House. I'm just wondering, Jason, who were they performing for? Hmm. I suppose they were performing for their constituents and each other, uh, despite the shushes from um, Speaker McCarthy up there behind the president. I think, you know, this is our new uh, populist uh, politics. It's more disorderly and and a lot of the norms of decorum of we've seen um, erode. And, you know, I would say it's not only Republicans. We had Nancy Pelosi tear up uh, President Trump's address at one point uh, after the State of the Union. 
I think that uh, Kevin McCarthy was asked uh, whether he planned to, you know, desecrate uh, President Biden's address afterwards, and thankfully he said he said no. So uh, we can be grateful for some of the uh, uh, some of the norms that are still intact, I suppose. Okay. Well, Speaker Pelosi was silent and waited until the speech was over um, to express her um, um, dis not dismay, but um, her dislike uh, of that speech. And speaking of dislike, the Republican rebuttal, which in my personal opinion is perhaps the most offensive rebuttal ever delivered, was given by Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And among the things she said was, the dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. It's time for a new generation of Republican leadership. And Jason, when she talks about a new generation of Republican leadership, is she talking about the need for the Republican Party to move beyond Trump? I mean, he is 76, 77, something like that. I mean, he is of Biden's generation. So is she talking about him? Yeah, I mean, I think she was primarily intending to uh, target President Biden, but you can't uh, target one but without the other because they're, they are um, not far from the same age. And you know you're right. That was the most you know partisan rebuttal that I that I remember. If I recall correctly, the first rebuttals to Biden's states of the union were from Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, who struck a much different tone. So this was really um, a uh, a you know kind of angry rebuttal, as you said. And the age aspect was, I suppose, meant to highlight uh, Miss Huckabee Sanders's age and uh, to jab Biden for that. But like you said, and like Christine said about uh, gerontocracy, you know, both of these candidates, if if they are uh, both going to be candidates in 2024, are uh, are getting up there in in years. Uh huh. And Christine, there were many things about Sanders' response I found offensive, but the most galling were her lauding the Little Rock Nine when her party and and Little Rock Central High School is her alma mater. And she's lauding the Little Rock Nine when her party is actively trying to prevent students from learning who the Little Rock Nine are. She even said in her rebuttal that th these efforts are indoctrination. Hold forth in the two minutes we've got left. <laughs> Absolutely. I thought this was one of the most incredible moments of the speech as well. You know, she also said um, earlier in the speech that she had banned racism uh, in Arkansas public schools. So, you know, we'll see how that's going. Um, much of Huckabee Sanders' speech was, you know, committed to culture warring, basically, front and center, after she called Biden weak, which didn't really jive with the very energized performance he put on in his speech. She went on to talk for, you know, dozens of minutes on CRT, um, trying to invoke sort of anti-trans uh, bills that the Republicans are trying to put in place, um, bringing to the fore all of these, frankly, sort of extremely online um, and extremely undetailed, um, you know, attempts to spark a fire over race, over LGBTQ rights, um, over anything I think that, you know, Republicans can get a handle on that they think will make Americans angry. Unfortunately, this just, isn't resonating with that many voters. Um, again, sitting with students, there were audible groans whenever the uh, conversations about, you know, school 
schools and CRT and how Democrats are trying to teach our children to hate ourselves, um, you know, were brought up because, you know, they feel that that's simply not true. And in fact, watching Republican um, states and governors attempt to ban books in schools, um, attempt to ban teaching of, you know, our our history, um, especially African-American history in the United States, um, I think is going to get more pushback than they expect. While it might resonate with a small and extreme sector of the Republican electorate, America is looking askance at, you know, these abridgments of freedom of speech and education. You know, and I just saw a story um, come across my Twitter feed about a, a school district in some state where they're banning teaching uh, African-American history from 1970 and earlier. <laughs> I mean, I laughed to keep from cursing on air. Christine Emba, Jason Willick, we got to go. Thank you both so much for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.